1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortez, the producer and host of today's episode. Today, I'll be chatting with Dr. Kevin Escudero about his book, Organizing While Undocumented Immigrant Youth's Political Activism Under the Law, published by New York University Press in early 2020. Dr. Escudero is currently an assistant professor of American Studies and Ethnic Studies at Brown University. He is also an affiliated faculty in the Department of Sociology. The Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies, and the Population Studies Training Center at Brown. He teaches classes in immigration and refugee studies, comparative racial and ethnic studies, social movements, and law and society. His research on undocumented immigrant activism has been supported by the National Science Foundation and the American Sociological Association. Most recently, Dr. Escudero was named a Mellon ACLS Scholar in Society, uh, an ACLS Scholar in Society Fellow um, for a project at a cultural institution in Guam and which we will learn more about later. And I would be remiss if I did not mention that we are conducting this interview on June 19th, 2020, one day after the Supreme Court of the United States has ruled that the current sitting U.S. president cannot immediately end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. This book is incredibly timely, and I'm so excited to speak with you, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on the show with us today.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Of course. Um, And I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself, right? Perhaps tell us a bit about where you grew up, where you went to school, who mentored you, and how you came to the topic of your book.
0: Sure. Um, So I uh, grew up in Southern California. I was born and raised in Southern California. My mom is a refugee from Vietnam and my dad is an immigrant from Bolivia. And growing up in a multiracial immigrant refugee household, issues of immigration were ones that were very present in my childhood. I saw how my parents navigated these issues, how people in our community, how members of my extended family, some of whom were undocumented or were in the process of adjusting their immigration status, uh, grappled with the implications of immigration law in their daily lives. Um, And growing up uh, in in a multiracial household, I was also curious as to how different racial and ethnic immigrant communities dealt with issues of migration and legal status. And so uh, I I was always curious as to like, oh, Asian-Americans are dealing with this, Latinos are dealing with this. Um, And so that kind of stimulated my interest from an early age in some of these topics. Um, I was lucky to have the opportunity to go to UCLA for undergrad. And while I was at UCLA, I participated in a summer program uh, for underrepresented students called the uh, Freshman Summer Program, FSP. And that program introduced me to the field of Chicano-Chicano Studies and Ethnic Studies, where I ended up majoring in Chicano-Chicano Studies and learning about the power and the importance of sharing your narrative and your lived experience and the way in which that offers an important set of conversations and uh, just kind of background for academia that isn't always covered in traditional archives or approaches to to studying uh, communities' experiences. And so uh, I was really excited about ethnic studies and and kind of dove right in and majored in Chicago studies. Uh, And this was at a time when, uh, this is 2006 to 2009. So this was a time when there was a lot of push for the federal DREAM Act, which uh, was a bill which still has not yet been passed, but if it was to be passed, uh, the most recent iteration, would have provided a path to US citizenship for undocumented young people folks who either pursue two years of higher education or two years of service in the U.S. armed uh, U.S. military or armed services. And while the bill has been critiqued uh, for many of its shortcomings and its limitations and the narrow scope, uh, there was a very big push on the campus at UCLA of undocumented students, organizing for a path to citizenship, for financial aid, for increased resources. And so um, I, I was, you know, coming from an immigrant background, and then being at a campus where I saw people who were like me, students of color, interested in social justice issues, uh, you know, navigating being in this college experience. Yet I had friends who were undocumented and who faced very different challenges uh, than I did, uh, even though, you know, I had many of my own adjustments going to a large four-year institution and being exposed to that environment. So I really was able to see from activists like Tam Tran, Cynthia Felix, who had come a little bit before me, but whose legacies were still, uh, you know, very much present in the activism that was happening on campus and the work students were doing that had a big impact. And, and so I started to see and get involved as an undergrad in different spaces on campus with uh, immigrant rights organizing, even though, you know, I myself am not undocumented, I was able to understand some of the issues from my activist participation, and um, I ended up applying to grad school because I saw the importance of organizing and the way in which organizing is so central to the field of ethnic studies, and it's a field born out of protest and praxis-oriented scholarship, And so that encouragement and uh, my mentor, Professor Robert Chao Romero, who is in Chicano-Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies at UCLA, uh, who is also Asian and Latinx, uh, was very formative in in pushing me to pursue a PhD. And so I was accepted to the UC Berkeley PhD program in Ethnic Studies. I went straight through and continued to the grad program. And uh, I knew I was interested in race as a multiracial person. And I was interested in the ways that issues of different, uh, you know, certain issues can affect uh, various communities. So how immigration can affect Asian, Latinx, Muslim American, uh, African immigrant communities, etc. And so uh, one of my mentors in grad school, Professor Evelyn O'Connell Glenn, who I took a seminar with, suggested, you know, you've been involved in the immigrant rights movement. You've, you know, been part of that space, uh, 2006, 2009, and then- 2010, there was a close uh, vote on the DREAM Act, but it didn't pass. It passed in the House, but not in the Senate. And so she suggested, you know, why don't you consider doing your dissertation or your graduate work on immigrant rights and in particular focus on identity, racial identity, gender, sexuality, etc. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's where I kind of got the idea and the encouragement um, to take some something that I've been really invested in for personal and activist reasons for scholarship and academic research. And uh, and so, yeah, that this ended up becoming my dissertation, doing field work in San Francisco and Chicago with different organizers and undocumented youth organi- activists. And then uh, later on, I added New York City as the third site while I was doing my uh, postdoc. And then when I was uh, doing a master's in law at Yale, um, I, I talked to some folks in New York and, and added those interviews to the book. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about the genesis of the project and my own academic background and how I grew up and how it all kind of came together to, to help me uh, conceptualize this project.
1: So, Kevin, can you go ahead and tell us um, a bit about um, setting the stage for, the, for us listeners, right? What are the parameters and the methodology of your study? Where and with who are you working with um, in this book, right? And this is, this is before we get into the theory um, that you lay, that you that you laid down for us, but can you tell us a bit about the foundation of the book to better understand what we'll be talking about moving
0: forward? Sure, so um, I look in the book at undocumented immigrant activists uh, in the case of those young people, and I ask, what are the ways that these young people are able to organize a national social movement, a very important, powerful social movement, despite the barrier of legal status. So folks aren't able to vote. Folks aren't able to participate in politics in the kind of electoral politics realm. Uh, They do, but just not in the traditional way that other folks have. And that through taking part in these actions, uh, actions, people are raising the awareness that they are undocumented and then potentially, um, you know, subjecting themselves to being put into deportation proceedings, right? Um, And so... I want to understand like, what are some of the ways that people are pushing back and fighting back? Um, And so I, um, so I, I draw an ethnography and interviews Um, So I did ethnography in three different cities, San Francisco, Chicago, and New York. And I chose these cities because they're epicenters in the movement. Uh, They are key places where undocumented activists have been organizing and mobilizing, and also cities and localities have created particular protections and support systems for local undocumented immigrants. Um, And I spent time working with different organizations, sitting in on meetings, doing participant observation, Um, going to actions, more public-facing events, going to internal meetings of different organizations, of observing, and then inviting people from those groups to do interviews with me so that I could better understand some of their experiences um, and the particularities of their experiences as undocumented immigrants, how they got involved in the movement, uh, how long they've been involved, What does the nature of their involvement look like? What do their family members think? How has their involvement shifted over time? Trying to really understand that experience. And through those conversations, people were starting to bring up a lot of discussion about intersectional identities and saying, well, I'm also a student, or I'm also queer, or I'm also... Uh, you know, from El Salvador, not from Mexico. So that is a salient part of my identity. And so those aspects um, were ones that came up time and time again. And so I started to explore and think more critically about the role of identity and intersectional identities within uh, undocumented immigrants, political activism, lived experience. And um, yeah, and I did this work over a, a kind of extensive period of time. So 2009, To 2018, and uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier, 2009 is the period right before the uh, the close vote on the federal Dream Act, which, if passed, would have provided a path to citizenship for undocumented young people. And then um, the uh, you know announcement of the federal or, or the deferred action for childhood arrivals of the DACA program in 2012, and then the ending of the DACA program in 2017. And uh, right before that, the election of uh, our current administration, which, uh, as folks are probably familiar with, have taken a very harsh stance towards the immigrant community, including undocumented immigrant youth. Um, So the periodization of the book also covers kind of, as I mentioned, pre-DACA, DACA, DACA, post-DACA, and these kind of national and also local level policy innovations that were taking place. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And can you can you talk more specifically about the role of intersectionality, right? And here I'm thinking about, um, Crenshaw, right. I'm thinking about the theorists who are sort of, who are, who are, who are upholding and writing about intersectionality that you use in your book and that you lay out in your book. So can you talk about the importance, um, of intersectionality, um, and perhaps maybe the importance of an intersection, uh, intersectional movement identity, right. And, and why those are so important to, to the book and to, um,
0: to undocumented immigrant youth activism? Sure, so um, undocumented immigrant youth activists, their discussions of intersectionality definitely are important and, uh, and highly salient in the book. Uh, and in my project, I draw on political discussions of intersectionality. And so uh, I think there's a lot of great scholarship on intersectional activism. And intersectional research. But uh, I was really interested in how does intersectionality translate into the political sphere? And I, I feel like there's um, it's become um, an area that's grown a lot in terms of scholarly research. So I draw on folks like Kimberly Crenshaw as you mentioned, uh, Dorothy Roberts and a co-author uh, have a piece on the political implications of intersectional approaches to organizing. Um, there's work by Kathy Cohen, who I think has talked about Uh, intersectionality uh, within the queer community and really nicely discuss kind of some of the stakes of that. And so I pair political intersectionality or political discussions of intersectional identity and theories of intersectionality alongside conversations of um, kind of identity and social movements, right? And so the political aspect of intersectionality of talking about how intersectionality facilitates coalition building with other groups um, between Asian and undocumented Asian immigrant and undocumented immigrant groups, um, between queer folks and uh, non-queer identified folks. I think looking at the political stakes of intersectionality and also thinking about um, the role of identity in social movements, which uh, discussions of collective identity and how the scholarship has stressed the importance of a collective cohesive identity for creating a movement, a robust movement, and the ways that oftentimes people would assume that a diffuse identity or a, a complex identity would make it more difficult for folks to kind of buy into the movement to get involved and to, uh, to see themselves as reflected within the movement is not necessarily the case for undocumented folks, right? That the undocumented immigrant movement has really prioritized an intersectional identity and has also prioritized the importance of a multifaceted collective identity. So in the book, I talk about, you know, the intersectional aspect of it and how it facilitates coalition building, but also the ways that uh, a multifaceted, nuanced identity, identity is helpful because it provides a way for folks to think about, um, you know, the, the benefits of heterogeneity within a movement, of affirming difference, of really supporting uh, all members and aspects of the undocumented community.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, And can you, maybe we can, you can talk more specifically then about identity, the identity mobilization model, right? And for those of you who might have the book with you, um, there's a really great um, visual representation on page 35. Um, so Kevin, if you would like, can you please talk to us more about this identity mobilization model? Um, and, and and then that can, that can really propel us into the rest of the book, right? Um, so yeah, can you please talk about, about the model?
0: Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, um, the identity mobilization model is a model that I came up with as a means of discussing some of the ways that I see intersectionality as a political tool being used by undocumented immigrant activists, drawing on the literature, as I mentioned before, within intersectionality or studies of intersectionality um, that have come from you know ethnic studies, uh, African-American studies, gender and sexuality studies, queer studies. Um, and then collective identity and social movement literature. And, you know, that's largely sociology, political science, uh, and ethnic studies. And so the model has three parts. um, And I I kind of try to explain how this community that may see itself as different comes then to see their issues and um, challenges that they're facing as one of everybody's, right? Of one that, of a collective linked fate. So I begin with, uh, you know, folks who may not see their issues or struggles as similar, uh, and in the diagram I have these different shapes where people might be, you know, different organizations with different missions, goals, values, um, et cetera. And the first strategy is recognizing um, kind of shared interest or common interest through what I call as community knowledge sharing practices. And community knowledge sharing practices are a way that I – Describe how community members do a lot of informal education with one another. So, a conversation between two different members of an organization saying, you know, I may be Asian undocumented, you may be Latinx and undocumented, but hey, you know, we have a lot of things in common. Like, I also am undocumented, or I also live in a similar neighborhood as yours. And, uh, or they might take the bus, you know, home from a protest together, or they might, you know, study at the same university. And so, there's points of Uh, overlap where people are able to share their own lived experience their histories to educate one another through the personal narrative and so those are what I call community knowledge sharing practices rather than kind of formal ways workshops and teach-ins and things like that which are great but these more informal mechanisms that people use to educate one another and to share uh, about those experiences with one another the second one is strategically leveraging an intersectional identity. So uh, there were many moments where people who have these intersectional identities use them to educate people about kind of, you're, you know, you're talking about this issue, but I also experienced this issue and it's important to reference that and vice versa. And so kind of speaking on behalf of that intersectional experience that one embodies uh, in order to create that space for even those conversations to be had. And while it's definitely burdensome on the person who uh, ex- uh, kind of ex- experiences those identities, that it's really important that those folks are present in the space and allowed to speak up and take leadership roles, et cetera. Um, so folks who are Asian undocumented, folks who are in docuqueer, et cetera. Um, The last part is uh, high stakes allyship. And so there's a lot of discussion in the literature on allyship of why allyship is important. But I, you know, uh, I think it's important to highlight the ways that there are people who are connected to the movement who may not be directly affected because they're not undocumented, but their spouse may be undocumented, or their parent may be undocumented, or their sibling may be undocumented. And these are, you know, mixed status families. And so that aspect allows or an understanding of how do you bring in other people, um, you know, Asian folks who have citizenship status, or queer folks who have citizenship status, or folks who aren't queer, um, kind of building alliances with undocumented and queer individuals. Um, and I think I forgot to mention this earlier, but the three groups that I focus on in the book that I did the ethnography and the interviews with are Asian undocumented, undocumented queer, and formerly undocumented individuals. And I chose these communities because they're communities that uh, when we think of the dreamer identity, which has become so prevalent and pervasive in in the media in particular, uh, it's college-going students, high-achieving students, people who... the narrative, kind of based on the court's decision in 1982, Plyler v. Doe, that these youth of the court, the language that the court used, these youth came at no fault of their own, and that it was a decision of their parents and and not the youth to come, and so why should they be penalized? And undocumented activists have really challenged and pushed back on that narrative, and rightly so, saying how it divides it divides the community, saying that parents are separate from children, et cetera, and creating these. Uh, false notions of deservingness and respectability within the movement. And so I focused on Asian undocumented and docuqueer and formerly undocumented individuals because those are communities that um, don't fit neatly within this dreamer narrative or dreamer category and whose identities and intersectional experiences I wanted to tease out more as part of this uh, ethnographic and interview- interview-based work for the book.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and a quick correction on my end, the model, the graph, the visual representation is on page 25, not 35. Um, but I'm sure you all figured that out by now. Uh, so, so Kevin, thank you so much for that really great explanation of, of not only the groups, but also um, <laughs> each strategy within the identity mobilization model. Um, let's go ahead and, and, and talk about then the chapter, chapter two, which focuses on Asian undocumented immigrant activists. And what I found, what I found really compelling in the early part of the chapter is how you talk about um, how activists, how Asian undocumented immigrant activists were were, uh, employing um, Asian and Asian American history to challenge the model minority myth and recast their current experiences as valid and nuanced. Right. Um, Yeah. Can you talk more about about the role of of history? Um, in, in a recasting of Asian undocumented immigrant activists and, and, how, and how history then allows them to, to um, see their experiences as valid?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, no, thanks for that question. So there were Asian undocumented activists who I talked to who mentioned moments where they didn't feel like, uh, they necessarily were included in Latinx undocumented spaces, and that might have been because of um, you know the connections between Latinx undocumented spaces and other just kind of general Latinx organizations. And so, as an Asian undocumented person, they felt connected to the space because of being undocumented immigrant, but also they may not speak Spanish or. They may not um, necessarily be in similar networks or friend groups with the people in those organizations, and so when they looked to you know Asian American or Asian immigrant serving organizations or groups, that they found you know some challenges with that. And I think one way that folks really made those connections were talking about their histories and experiences of the Asian immigrant community as one of the first communities to be labeled as undocumented in the United States, and drawing on the history of the Chinese Exclusion Act from 1882 to 1943 and how there was explicit anti-Asian sentiment and racial animus uh, of preventing Chinese immigrants from coming to the United States, or Chinese laborers from coming to the United States, and, uh, you know, on this very xenophobic, uh, you know, these immigrant workers are going to undercut wages of American, white American workers, and even at that point in history, whiteness was very, uh, you know, policed as a category within the United States, and so there was a great source of pride, I noticed, of these Asian undocumented activists of understanding and coming to to kind of fully appreciate their own community history. And then being able to use that as a moment of connection, as you mentioned, with their Latinx undocumented peers. And uh, I think all that kind of comes with the history of the emotional aspect of like, yes, my community has gone through this and coming to terms and to understand what that looks like. Uh, And also as the, using the identity mobilization model, these community knowledge sharing practices took place through people telling that history. So they would learn it maybe in an ethnic studies classroom or in a teaching they went to, or some reading they had done, um, or conversations they had with other Asian undocumented activists. And they were able to bring that lived history uh, or that, um, like lived experience and tie it to that kind of history and share it with their peers. And that was a way with their Latinx peers. And that was a way of making a strong connection um, with those folks. And so I feel like history was really pivotal to, um, to making those uh, alliances between Asian and Latinx undocumented folks that I worked with.
1: Mm-hmm. And in the book um, on page 56, I love what you said in terms of um... Asian and Asian American immigrant history has often been has often been seen and facilitated through race and ethnicity. But when we factor in history, right, we we, we start to see things like the economic crises of nineteen of the nineteen nineties throughout Asia, or how U.S. imperialism and colonialism plays a role in sending right in in immigration. Um. So not only along, along race not only along race and ethnicity, but how um imperialism also plays a big role in, in, and history plays a big role in, in, in immigration, right? And, and especially undocumented immigration. Um, but so, so thank you for that. And I'm specifically interested, um, in the differences in the history. So, so in the difference between, um, the activists who you call Henry and the activists who you call Anna, right? And their different experiences in in coming out as, as undocumented. Um, can you say more specifically about these and, and, and and especially in relation to the model minority myth that that they were often running up against. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, um, happy to do that. I, I think the the part where you talk about I think Henry is is elaborating on why his family moved to the United States and um, the nineteen nineties economic crisis in East Asia and with the World Bank and a lot of the financial instability happening there and how that affected his family's uh, experiences and ability to support themselves. Um, In in showing that example, I I really wanted to point out the ways I think people can say, yes, people are talking about intersectionality, but in a very cursory sense, right? Like I'm this and I'm that, and these are important. And I wanted to show that these young people were not just saying, you know, oh, it's an identity affirming aspect that intersectionality allows me um, to affirm who I am and where I come from but that it's doing important political work and it's also tied to understandings of structural inequality and structural issues and so by Henry being able to make those connections uh, of why his family came and what economic factors and conditions led to that and articulating that in our interview and then you know myself tying into some of the research on the topic I definitely wanted to show that, that these are structural and institutional critiques that these activists are making about the history of uh, immigrant detention, policing, uh, economic systems, and government relationships. And so that was um, something that I definitely wanted to point out. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. In terms of the differences in how Henry and Anna, who are you know two activists, Henry being a Korean undocumented activist, in the Bay Area in San Francisco, and Anna being a Filipino undocumented activist in the greater Chicago region. Uh, and they were perceived very differently, right? So Henry, people were like, it's, a, it's an Asian undocumented activist, that's really great. You know, uh, we need more Asian undocumented activists speaking out and folks were really excited. Uh, Henry was and is involved in many Latinx undocumented spaces, and he's spoken at rallies and taken part in civil disobediences. And so, um, you know, he mentioned in our interview kind of a little bit of feeling of tokenization of how he was always called upon as the Asian voice to represent the Asian undocumented community in this very monolithic sense and how that was challenging for him because he one felt that he didn't represent all Asians and rightly so, uh, but that his own experience as, as an undocumented individual sometimes competed with the challenge of activist work, public campaigns, things like that. Um, whereas for Anna, uh, she wasn't people didn't believe that she was undocumented. They said, Oh, you must be lying. Um, Filipinos aren't undocumented, uh, you know, Latinos are not undocumented, Latinx communities are not undocumented. And uh that was a real challenge for her. And then uh, she talks about in her quotes of Being uh, in activist spaces and collaborating with these individuals and then having that rejection of how when she comes out and discloses her undocumented identity, people pushing back and and how that hurt her and, uh, you know, really strained those relationships that she had with other activists and organizers. And so, I think that that was definitely you know that difference in how they were perceived of Henry wanting people wanting to interview him and put him at rallies in the front and and show that diversity of the movement and with Anna um, people not believing her saying that she's trying to you know whatever benefit from uh being an undocumented person and a benefit in the sense of like maybe publicity or something. Uh, But that's definitely not the case as as she discusses and describes because it's not as many people know an easy experience to be an undocumented immigrant in the United States. And in terms of the model minority myth, um, there's, you know, this notion that, uh, you know, now Asian Americans, previously other immigrant communities were able to, Uh, economically succeed and be socially mobile in the United States and that Asian, Asian Americans, Asian immigrants are seen, you know, have been cast, especially in contemporary racial discourse as the epitome of the model minority myth. And so if you're looking at these Asian undocumented folks, they're really struggling because they may be succeeding economically. They may be doing well in school, but being an undocumented immigrant, definitely limits and constraints as the scholarship in the literature on migrant illegality talks about your opportunities to go to school, to get a work permit, uh, to travel outside the United States, to there's this paranoia that you, you know, face of, am I, you know, going to be deported or do I need to renew this paperwork? Is the Supreme court going to rule in, in our favor? And so, um, so those kind of combinations of the model minority myth and, and a lot of it is tied to passing to a lot of Asian undocumented folks described that they they pass as not being undocumented because people don't suspect um, that they might be undocumented. And so, um, yeah, I think with the model minority myth, uh, the way it stands for Asian Americans, it plays out very differently for Asian undocumented folks with this idea of passing as a, as a resident, as a citizen, as somebody with you know legal status, but then also, um, having these expectations because of the model minority myth, but then the challenges that you face as a result of um, the limitations of one's legal status. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Thank you. Um, and I think, so I, I just want to quickly say that I really appreciated um, in the part where you talk about the leveraging where Asian undocumented activists um, and, and their leveraging of intersectional movement identity um, how they both had to—they um, had to balance, right, their their intersectional identity um, between maintaining a front with the larger immigrant rights movement, which was predominantly Latinx-led, and then also um, balancing that with creating, particularly, right, um, Asian undocumented spaces. And so, uh, you talked about that earlier, but I just want to say that that was, I think, really key for me in understanding this chapter. Um, but before we move on to the next chapter, I want to hear about, um, what I think is fascinating, um, your experiences with high stakes allyship, right? So in the last part of this chapter, you write about, um, your experience as a caretaker for an Asian undocumented activist while, uh, at a civil disobedience. Um, can you tell us more about this and your role and how that came, how that factored into your thought process of high stakes allyship?
0: Yeah, I'd be happy to, um, So that example towards the end of that chapter on Asian undocumented activist experiences is, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I was a caretaker at an action that happened in the Chicago area. Um, It was a civil disobedience where they were, you know, activists were protesting the detention and deportation of undocumented community members. And we were right outside the city of Chicago, So the city of Chicago is a, uh, you know, self-proclaimed sanctuary city that they support undocumented immigrants and um, that they're not actively trying to deport residents, even though we know uh, and organizations have shown that uh, it still happens in very guised or covert ways. But um, but this detention center right outside the city was where a lot of people from Chicago were being taken and then uh, housed for a couple days, they would uh, then be placed into deportation proceedings and be flown out um, from local airports to their country of citizenship. And the activists uh, did the civil disobedience to block the buses from leaving the detention center to use their ability as undocumented immigrants to vote, to do rallies, to do protests, but also to use their bodies to to prevent the deportation of fellow undocumented folks. And I found it to be really powerful that folks were willing to be arrested to um, you know, potentially, depending on what the local police office did in terms of referring uh, their information to uh, Immigration and Customs Enforcement to being placed in deportation proceedings themselves. And uh, they were wearing shirts that said undocumented, unafraid, unapologetic, uh, these were all directly impacted uh, individuals and affected individuals, and they prioritized the importance of those individuals being the ones to take part in the rally. I mean, in the in the disobedience, and so allies were not expected to or asked to to do that. And in my role as an ally, I was asked to instead uh, be a caretaker. And so the person that I was working with, uh, who was Asian and undocumented, I was supposed to be liaison with. Uh, Her family, and make sure that it was really hot and sunny, and so providing shade while I was able to get close enough um, before they started doing the arrest to uh, document things in case there were uh, it was any kind of police misconduct and we needed to file a report or things or escalate in that way. And so being a caretaker for this individual was uh, a really empowering experience for me because um, myself as an Asian immigrant uh, or as the child of an Asian immigrant parent. And this person, as an Asian undocumented person, we had a lot of conversations on like, how do I talk to her family, right? Or how do I, um, you know, do I tell a sibling first and then the parents next? Uh, and, and those kinds of conversations and being entrusted as an ally with those particular responsibilities. And I think one of the reasons why I, uh, I was very comfortable doing that for that individual was because of my own family's background and lived experience uh, coming from an Asian community, an Asian immigrant refugee community. And so that moment um, allowed me, I, I think, as a high stakes ally or somebody who's not undocumented myself or at risk of deportation to do a particular kind of work as an ally uh, that's not just kind of like, yes, I support and I acknowledge the importance of this movement, but to be involved in a way uh, where I have some stake, but definitely not the same kind of stake that uh, somebody who's directly impacted has. And so I shared that experience in the book as a way of talking about high stakes allyship, the embodiment of those experiences. And, you know, I just have so much respect for the undocumented activists who um, did multiple civil disobediences, blocking buses from that uh, detention center and really um, showing their power in terms of their political voice, but also in terms of their ability to do things and get things done and delay for one, two, three days, the deportation of individuals. So even family members could come visit so people can continue to fight their case. And so, um, yeah, that was a little bit about that experience. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Thank you. Um so let's go ahead and move on. For time's sake, let's move on to the third chapter, right, where you cover the participation of, of undocumented queer activists. Um, and I think for for me, this is a particularly interesting chapter because, at least in the current day immigrant rights movement, many of the people, if not all of the people who I follow, all of the activists who I follow or keep up with or involved with, are all queer, right? So it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, for me, I saw them. I always see them as like the face of the current day immigrant rights movement. But I think for this chapter really helped contextualize that in a longer lineage of undocumented queer activists um, in, in the immigrant rights movement. So I think the first thing that I want to just talk about is um, this, the, 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 the idea of coming out. And as you call it, right, the, 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 the tactic of coming out as a cross movement repertoire of coalition building. Um, so, so, can you briefly talk about that? Because you also mentioned it in, in the chapter with Asian undocumented immigrants, but really, um, it coming out of the LGBTQ rights movement, right? And how and how those movements um, and how that tactic was borrowed and 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 then used for the purposes of an immigrants' rights um, movement.
0: Sure. So, um, in that chapter, I talk about the ways that uh, coming out of the closet, right, and coming out as undocumented, are definitely different experiences. Uh, a lot of people that I talked to shared how coming out of the closet uh, is something that uh, it is very much um, related to, I guess, related to a lot of the um, kind of, a lot of it is, is coming out to your family, uh, sharing with close people that uh, that you're uh, queer identified. Uh, and so that was a very intimate and emotional experience for people with their families. Whereas coming out as undocumented, people said, you know, my family is not undocumented. Like we're all undocumented. Uh, and we talk about it all the time at home and it's nothing big, but it was really uh, for them coming out to, to their peers, to their teachers, to their mentors Um And so uh, there were similarities in the process of coming out, of disclosing, of sharing that experience with someone, but there were also challenges of, you know, what are the implications for coming out as undocumented versus coming out as queer, and also the idea that immigration status is is fluctuating, Uh, and so you may be undocumented now, but you may not be in the future, whereas uh, folks identify as queer definitely, you know things change over the life course in terms of how you identify with your queerness. But, um, but that immigration status was something that uh, had this, this remedy of sorts that people could um, decide to access or try to access or or maybe not. And so there were definite similarities and also differences. And I cite some of the scholarship that has talked about that. uh, And I think done so in a very comprehensive way. Uh, But I, I found that a lot of the Andaki queer activists uh, who are, profiled in the book or who I talk about in the book, were, um, you know, sometimes people came out as queer first, as undocumented first. There's a quote from uh, one of the activists who talks about the National Coming Out of the Shadows event, where folks in Chicago came out of the shadows um, and so came out as undocumented publicly on stage and in downtown Chicago and were sharing their experiences as undocumented, uh, unafraid, and apologetic. And one of the, the activists says, you know, I hadn't come out as queer yet. I was only out as undocumented. And that the, the cumulative nature of these experiences, so coming out as queer first or undocumented first, allowed people to, to see what that process looks like. And they even, you know, when they did come out as the other identity, it allowed to build, them to build on that or kind of build on that momentum. Um, and so, yeah, I really try to tease out some of the ways in which that took place, uh, and coming out, I think, you know, I try to talk about it as uh, a movement strategy, as a movement repertoire, that it's used across movements, right? It's used in immigrant rights. It's used in queer activism. It's used in other movements of disclosing a particular aspect of your identity. So, um, yeah, that was also why I feel like the coming out metaphor or tool or repertoire is so effective because it cuts across many different social movements.
1: Yeah, I think. Uh the, the national coming out of the shadows rally or day was so powerful because as opposed to like the private or intimate setting of coming out, whether queer or undocumented to either parents or a loved one or a friend or a teacher or whatever, right? Taking it to a public stage um that is that that is being Broadcasted or 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 openly open for critique to a a very large public, right? Um, So I think this this sort of this form of community knowledge sharing practice highlights the margins of the movement by emphasizing intersectional identities, right? And by sharing their identities on such a public stage, we we you allowed us to see that very clearly that these activists have, have an intersectional consciousness that, that allows for an unfolding of complex identity formation, and then reveals, right, the potential for coalition building between different movements. And I think that was, for me, really, really fabulous to, to read through. Um, but in terms of them leveraging an, an intersectional identity movement, right, you sort of um, talk about three different things, right? You talk. You say. You say they do this by highlighting the challenges of inserting non-normative narratives into mainstream queer movements, as you told through the story of James. Um, you say they do this by highlighting queer issues in intergenerational immigrant rights spaces, as told through the story of Felipe. And then you say that they do this by create by the creation of undocuqueer queer focused spaces, as told through the story of David. Um, and so I, I was wondering if you if you wanted to expand on any of these. Um we can also talk about the high stakes allyship within Undaki queer Movements and particularly this like letter writing campaign through the lens of James and James's partner, right? So I'm I'm gonna leave that open for you um before we move on to the next chapter because um I don't wanna take up too much of your time.
0: No problem. Um so the discussion um of James of how you know um as you mentioned, like James is an undocumented immigrant in Chicago um, and was let go from his job because of being an undocumented immigrant. His company, his, his employer was going through this uh, employment verification system. And so they checked his documents and his documents didn't match with the identity that was on file. And so he was let go. Um, And how that was really challenging for him as an undocumented and queer person. But uh, what's curious is that he goes to a um, queer rights organization rather than an undocumented immigrant organization, even though he, he was let go from his job for being an undocumented person. And so I think while some folks might say, you know, because he's undocumented, he probably would go to undocumented space. At that moment, there was a lot of organizing around queer issues and he wanted to be a part of those spaces and find that he found that empowering. And so he went to those spaces. But then um, kind of that second aspect of the identity mobilization model of leveraging your intersectional identity in those movement spaces for him in the queer activist space that he was a part of. Uh, marriage equality was a big deal uh, for, uh, you know, for the other activists and for him, it was as well. But he was also asking questions of how does undocumented immigrant status intersect with marriage equality? Uh, marriage equality would allow a pathway to citizenship for an undocumented person who marries their same sex partner. Uh, and so that's an important implication, but those conversations were not happening in that space for him. And he talks about the spatiality of the city and how even just where he lived and where his family lived in that particular part of the city was so far removed as an immigrant area um, from this middle class, uh, largely white, upper middle class area where these queer rights conversations were being uh, had. And so even just to make it to a meeting was challenging for James. And and so he eventually left that organization and went to um, an immigrant rights organization for undocumented folks. And became a co-chair of the organization, uh, has remained active in the movement, and, uh, you know, later comes into contact uh, with that the director of the organization who was saying, you know, oh, this is all about queer rights, marriage, marriage equality, immigrant issues don't intersect, or we just can't deal with those right now, and apologizes. So that person, she apologizes to him and says, you know, I'm sorry about that. Um, you know, I've learned a lot since, and maybe there's ways that your immigrant rights organization can kind of, uh, partner with our, uh, queer rights organization. And so even that kind of conversation, uh, was one that James as an Adaki queer person was able to, to broach, to bring up and, and to push the organization to think about, uh, because of his experiences both. And even though he didn't remain in the organization, uh, the queer rights organization, he was able to uh to really just kind of come into full understanding of his identity as an activist and and as an intersectional uh, organizer and coalition builder and so um, yeah i think that really highlights the strategic leveraging of an intersectional identity or that second step of the identity mobilization model mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. thank you um let I, I do want to i do want to give some time to the fourth chapter, right? Which is the last chapter in, in the subgroup, uh, in, the, the last subgroup in, 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 the, in your book, which is formerly undocumented activists and specifically focusing on the experiences of a formerly undocu- uh, undocumented woman of color. Um, and I think what was um, really interesting in this chapter was how you talked about the effects of being undocumented and how they, these effects endure even after status adjustment Right? um and specifically illegality as a continuum that you say that you write quote shifts over time and is highly contextualized, so can you talk to us about about um perhaps the the illegality as a continuum and its and and the effects of being undocumented and how this endures over time and how you saw it play out within your um study participants
0: so um there were people who, when I started the project um, and I re-interviewed folks at a couple moments, um, so there were people that I had done interviews with towards the beginning of the project that I re-interviewed and people towards the middle that I, I followed up with, and um, there were folks who were able to adjust their immigration status, so through marriage largely, and these were undocumented uh Undocumented immigrant women individuals, and they identified as undocumented women, and they they were able to adjust through marriage to a U.S. citizen partner, and they were some are in the process of adjusting, some were still undocumented, had just filed the paperwork, and as you probably know, it's a long process, or as many you know listeners know, it's a long uh, process of conditional, uh, you know, conditional status, and then green card, and then eligibility to adjust as a U.S. citizen. And I talk about some of that in in the background of the book, um, the second chapter, and um, so yeah. So folks were able to adjust, but but they weren't just saying, "Oh, I have uh, documents now, I have status now, uh, I'm no longer involved in the movement." They were still very much involved, um, and their identities as as immigrants, as formerly undocumented folks, as women, as women of color all came to the fore. And I I wanted to include a chapter on formerly undocumented immigrant women of color, because I think that, um, sometimes, you know, folks would say, Oh, once you adjust, um, then you're no longer directly affected by the movement or by the issue. So therefore, um, you know, we should let the directly affected individuals take the leadership role. And, uh, I, you know, totally agree with whatever people that are directly affected in the movement decides. But I found that in interviewing these formally undocumented women, mm-hmm. that it wasn't as clear cut of a divide of like now you're no longer formally now you're formally undocumented, you have some status, uh, some form of status, you're no longer affected. That they were still involved in different ways, and you can see through the individuals, Asusena and Ana um, and other folks that uh, I think it's Juana. Um, that they they all dealt with it differently. Some, you know, saw themselves as a movement elder in, in some sense and wanted to mentor and support these younger folks who now come into the movement with DACA and so don't know what life without DACA is like and are having a hard time adjusting to the fact that DACA might go away or, you know, now it's... Uh, you know changed recently uh, and so or they you know are talking about their spouse who is a support for them and uh, is helping them go through that process or they use the academic intellectual space as uh, one of the folks who's pursuing a phd talked about and how her intellectual conversations allowed her to think more transnationally of her identity as a as a mexicana uh, and not as a chicana um, and not somebody uh, that is tied to one particular place, but with her new status, able to I, understand and connect with uh, her Mexican roots in a, in a different way and to travel outside the U.S., etc. Um, so I wanted to, to kind of understand those intersections of being an immigrant woman, formerly undocumented, woman of color, and their role within the movement. Because uh, I thought that was a salient intersectional identity. Um, And also folks who began this process of doing the activism while being undocumented and then now have adjusted their status and are trying to figure out uh, on an individual basis what their continued relationship to the movement looks like.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. uh, um, Towards the end of the chapter, I was really struck by how you were saying formerly undocumented activists. Complicated your understanding of allyship and high stakes allyship because of 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 the adjusted status, right? Can you talk a bit about um, about this complication and and the the difficulty of of high stakes allyship or allyship um, amongst formerly undocumented activists, at least within your within your conceptualizations of allyship?
0: Sure. So I think allyship within the scholarship. Um, sometimes tends to uh, create some divisions, right? There are people that are affected and that are um, directly facing these issues and there are people that are allies that are here to support. And there's porosity between this boundary of ally and directly affected movement participant that these formerly undocumented immigrant women are pointing out that sometimes uh, they're, you know, they could talk about being a a movement activist and directly affected participant. And then later talk about, well, now I'm an ally and I identify as an ally and I step back in certain spaces because I want to let the people who are currently uh, faced with these issues be the ones to make those decisions. And um, that, that kind of complicates even the construction of an ally identity. And so I think high stakes allyship in the way that it emphasizes connections and stakes of people, even if they're not directly affected or subject to deportation because they're not undocumented, still have a stake in what's going on or have a connection and are able to mobilize that or activate that to be involved. Um, it can also work in another way where people who were formally undocumented or formally directly affected can then become an ally And drawn their experiences not only through the connections I have to the movement, but also through having been subjected to these very same systems and structures uh, for a long period of time. And I think what the chapter also does uh, is show the way that these experiences with this construct of illegality are, are very resonant. They stick for a long period of time that people who have adjusted their status have described to me. I still have nightmares about being undocumented or I still fear when I see the police or... Um, I, I, still have these intuitions when people ask, like, or they, they, you know, I can't leave the country. Oh, wait, yes, I can if I need to. And so, um, that even adjusting their own perceptions and understandings of what they can do now as somebody who's adjusted or who's in the process and what that means has has highlighted the the porosity or the the and also the directionality of ally and uh, directly affected movement participant.
1: Mm-hmm. So, Kevin, we're coming to the end of the book, um, and in light of the recent Supreme Court ruling, which argued that the current sitting U.S. president cannot immediately end DACA, I want to take us to the first page of your concluding chapter. You write that one of the more common questions you receive as a scholar of undocumented immigrant activism is, quote, how can undocumented immigrants, especially in the face of of a hostile and uneven legal context, mobilize to secure increased rights, end quote. And you go on to answer by saying how the undocumented and formerly undocumented immigrant activists you worked with, quote, possessed a great deal of knowledge regarding their rights as immigrants residing in the United States and about the legal system. Collectively, this knowledge provided the resources individuals who who some might consider unlikely political organizers drew from their drew from in their transformation into an immensely powerful group of social movement activists, end quote. So the SCOTUS ruling is is a direct example, right, of such knowledge and power wielded by undocumented immigrant activists and allies. Um, And I'm curious if you can quickly just speak more about what you've been seeing recently from from undocumented youth activists and the role of of, um, undocumented immigrant youth organizing around the SCOTUS decision, Um, if you can speak to that at all. This is kind of a Kind of outside the book question, but also I'm I'm just curious as um, someone who's curious <laughs> about what you have to say.
0: Sure, um, I think that the um, you know recent SCOTUS decision, um, you know, it's a five four decision, so it's a close decision. Um, kind of actually five four like Plyler Plyler v. Doe in 1982, uh, and, and I think what's Powerful about the decision is that undocumented immigrants were able, and, and allies and um, organizations and immigrant rights organizations were able to come together and sue the federal government and win in the Supreme Court at the U.S. Supreme Court level, uh, the highest court in the United States. And, and I think it sends a very powerful message of uh, the political force and the um, power of this community that uh, I try to demonstrate in the book of undocumented immigrants are important force to be reckoned with, who are amazing organizers and uh, have to live through these daily experiences and fight for the issue at the same time. So they're constantly thinking about and dealing and processing with what it means to be undocumented. And then also having to articulate that on a news conference or a press conference or go to the Supreme Court and testify. And, you know, there's litigants in the case who are undocumented um, in, you know, the DACA case that I think it also shows that you have undocumented immigrants who are lawyers, who are physicians, who are coming to the Supreme Court and saying uh, we are doing critical services for your country during the pandemic. Um, in general, you have a shortage of physicians and, and attorneys and health workers and educators who are uh, people of color, who are immigrants, able to support those communities in the U.S. And so really showing their power and their strength as a community. Um, I mean, it's definitely not uh, over that uh, the current administration could decide that they want to um re uh end the program in a in a way that is concordant with what the court is saying they need to do or they should have done. Um and they could deny the ability of people to um to apply, even though the court has said uh that they should allow people or they could allow people to apply um for DACA again as you know it was able to accept new applications in 2017. So I mean it's important watershed moment for sure for the movement and for what activists have accomplished. But as I've learned from calls that I was on yesterday the day that the decision was handed down from different organizations, uh, you know they mentioned today we'll celebrate and tomorrow we'll continue the fight because this is about DACA, but this is also about you know supporting the entire undocumented community and folks who don't qualify for DACA, folks who are never eligible for DACA, and so um, yeah, I think it's definitely a timely moment to see and how we've seen the the. Um, resilience and courage of undocumented activists.
1: Mm -hmm. Kevin, what are your hopes for this book? How would you like it to see it travel? How would you like it to be used by academics, um, activists, community members, allies? Like what, what, when writing this book, what were your thoughts and hopes for how it would travel?
0: Um, That's a great question. I, I, My hope is that this book will be used by academics for sure who write on this issue to inform the conversation uh, and our scholarly understandings and approaches to understanding or to examining uh, issues of illegality and immigrant legal status. But I think in addition to that, um, I care very deeply that this book uh, impacts and intervenes in um, political debates around undocumented status (laughs) and the political organizing of undocumented immigrants. And I had a call from a colleague recently uh, who asked if, um, if I would be able to, um, to share kind of the like book purchase discount code with her so she could buy some books for an organization, an immigrant youth undocumented youth organization that she works with. And I was like, I'm happy to, and I'm happy to even send some, you know, copies. And that was just uh, really humbling for me to learn that undocumented activists wanted to read this book um, because I'm definitely writing about their lives and experiences, but they're, um, you know, living it. And so I I was humbled by the fact that they wanted to read it, engaged with it. She said they were excited about it. about reading it and I've been able to speak on some panels with some of the organizers uh, in New York. I did a panel recently uh, at the Tenement Museum in New York City with um, some undocumented activists in New York about uh, some of the topics of the book. And so I definitely want it to be a book that engages the communities about which I'm writing. And uh, and I've thought about ways to give back uh, to those communities and those individuals who have shared their story. And so one thing I'm doing is taking the, um, the, you know, uh, small checks that we get from, uh, the press, uh, whenever there's royalties and things like that, uh, and take that money and, uh, give it to the organizations. And I know it's not a huge amount of money. Um, but that money is a way of kind of paying it forward to the organizers that let me into to their lives and shared their experiences with me. And, uh, also continuing to think about reciprocal ways that I can, uh, Honor those communities and and appreciate them, inviting them to give talks or um, doing things like that. Of of continuing to support the movement and uh, the activism of the undocumented immigrant. community.
1: Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um. And I think the way you the way you speak about your work and 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 how you want to travel and what you plan to do is so exemplary of the type of academic that we need more of. And I think, thank you for being a model for so many young academics like myself. Um, so now this is sort of where I get to finally ask you the last question. Um, first, first off, thank you for explaining to us how you came to write Organizing Well and Documented. Um, but one last question before we go, what are you working on now?
0: Um, So I've been fortunate to uh, receive a fellowship, um, an ACLS Mellon Scholars and Society Fellowship, to go to Guam. Um, So fingers crossed I'll be able to uh, physically travel during this COVID-19 pandemic. But my goal is to go to Guam, be in residence at the Guam Museum, and um, learn more about the decolonization activism that's happening there. So Guam is a current U.S. territory um, and there are immigrant and indigenous activists working together to fight for the decolonization of the island politically in terms of having a uh, plebiscite to decide the future political relationship of the island to the United States. Do they still want to be a U.S. territory? Do people want independence, statehood, uh, free association? Similar to conversations that are happening in Puerto Rico or other uh, U.S. territories, right? And so... Um, one of the activists that I interviewed for this book um, came from the Marshall Islands. uh, So moved from the, was born in the Philippines, moved to the Marshall Islands and then moved to Chicago. And this activist talked with me a lot about, her experience in the Marshall Islands, and how, as a Filipino undocumented person in the U.S., she always felt this affinity with the Marshallese community. Uh, she made connections with Marshallese folks in in the U.S. in Chicago because um, of her time living in the Marshall Islands. She learned how to speak the language while she was there. Um, she has you know close friends who are Marshallese and uh, and, and a lot of indigenous. Uh, communities in Oceania are thinking about decolonization because they're still in these quasi-colonized uh, political statuses or colonized like Guam uh, as a U.S. territory. And so um, hearing more about kind of immigrant and indigenous coalition building, I think is really interesting to me. Uh, and uh, I, it kind of was sparked by some conversations that I had with this activist, Anna, who's Filipina and undocumented, but grew up in the Marshall Islands, and so, it kind of shifted my focus to the Pacific, to you know, Oceania, to thinking about immigrant and indigenous coalition building. And I chose Guam because um, my mom's family, as uh, Vietnamese refugees came through Guam um, at Anderson Air Force Base as part of the Vietnamese refugees that were flown, uh, kind of as Professor Yen Le Esprit, who talks about, these uh, military bases, uh, so evacuations through bases to Camp Pendleton eventually in Southern California, and then later to different parts of the U.S. where they settled. And so um, thinking about kind of the conversations around settler colonialism, indigenous studies, and the intersections with immigrants, immigrant social movements and immigrant activism is something I hope to look at for this next project um, and and locating, you know, my own personal experience, but also how this kind of grows out of some conversations I had with activists for this first book project. So it's kind of a combination of both.
1: Well, I'm sure we are all very excited um, and cannot wait for (laughs) to hear more and to read more about this work. (laughs) Thanks. Um, But Kevin, I just want to thank you so much again for being on the show with us. I really enjoyed it. I know the reader, the listeners really enjoyed it and the readers of your book, hopefully if they read this, read your book and also listen to the podcast gained so much from it like I have. Um, Just again, thank you so much.
0: No, thank you.